Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey. I am a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of Why Women Have Better Sex and Their Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. In this episode, I'm going to be reading a piece from January 31st, 1918. It's called Decree on Child Welfare. And this was something that Kolontai wrote in her capacity as the Commissar of Social Welfare. She was in the Bolshevik government, in Lenin's government, immediately after the revolution. And she issued this decree. And before I read this, it's actually quite short. So I have a little bit of time to elaborate on the context within which this was written and then obviously uh, published and distributed in the very early years of the new workers' state in the Soviet Union. The key thing to understand about this piece, I think, is that Kolontai was very concerned about the state of Russian children, particularly the children of the proletariat. And this is in a context of incredible exploitation of the industrial working class in places like St. Petersburg and Moscow. You know, women worked these horrifically long hours and children were basically left more or less on their own in dormitories. Mothers had very little time. They had no opportunity to leave the workplace before or after giving birth. Many women actually gave birth in the factories while they were working. They had no time for breastfeeding. Obviously, many of the women were very undernourished and didn't actually have breast milk. So her concerns for children here are very much about the status of the working class and and how terrible their living conditions are. And this is something that actually really radicalized Kolontai at a very young age. One book that I'm going to recommend to all listeners, I mean, there are several very good biographies of Alexandra Kolontai. The one that has just been reissued recently by Haymarket Books is by Kathy Porter. It's a reissue of a much earlier biography. And in this book, she recounts a really moving scene, which took place in January of 1896. Now, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, Kolontai was married rather young to a distant cousin, Vladimir Kolontai. She she kept his name for her whole life, and she had a young son, Misha. And her husband was sort of a liberal. He was an engineer, and he was dispatched to this factory. It's the Krengholm Textile Factory in the town of Narva, which is about 150 miles Uh, west of St. Petersburg. And he was going to install this ventilation system because this was a textile factory and the air was so terrible in there that many workers actually contracted tuberculosis within three or four years of working. Many workers did not live past the age of 30 because of the horrible conditions in this factory. So he decides uh, he's a liberal and he thinks that he's going to improve the conditions of the working class by building this big ventilation system. And so he decides to take his wife with him to go see the factory where he's going to be installing this ventilation system with his colleagues. And when she gets there, she's absolutely horrified by the conditions that she sees. A lot of the women workers there tell her that they work 18 hours a day. They're often locked into this factory. They live in dormitories attached to the factory, and they can only be let outside for a couple of hours on Sunday. These are 
horrific conditions and the air quality is absolutely atrocious as far as Alexander Kollontai can tell. It's not a wonder that all these people are getting sick. But the thing that really breaks her heart, and there's a very moving scene in this biography when Kolontai wanders around on her own because the guide just basically abandons her and she ends up in one of the dormitories where the workers sleep and she runs across a couple of children and there's a young girl who's basically looking after a, a, a child, a baby boy, really about the same age as Alexandra Kolontai's own child at the time. And she leans down to pick up the boy and the it becomes very clear that the child is dead. The child has just died uh, on the floor of this dormitory in this factory. And the young girl who is charged with looking after, you know, the child says, oh, well, sometimes that happens during the day. You know, auntie will come and take him away when the shift ends at six. Kolontai is absolutely radicalized. She writes later that this was a really big turning point in her life. And I think you have to understand that this was something that she could hardly have even come close to imagining given the aristocratic nature of her previous life. Despite the fact that she had a lot of sympathy for the working class, she had never really seen the conditions under which they labored until this moment in 1896 when she went to Narva to visit this factory with her husband. I think the other thing that's really important in in order to understand this piece is to think about the early drafts of the Communist Manifesto. A lot of people don't realize that Engels wrote two earlier drafts of the Communist Manifesto before he collaborated with Marx. And in both of these early drafts, he says very clearly, these are both uh, one from June of 1847, the other one is from November of 1847. And he clearly states that all children should be raised communally and educated communally. And he was quite explicit in the language around this in the first two drafts, although it gets changed by the time of the Communist Manifesto. So in the draft of A Communist Confession of Faith, which is June 1847, Question 19 reads, how will you arrange this kind of education during the period of transition? And Engels answers, all children will be educated in state establishments from the time when they can do without the first maternal care. And then in section 18 of Principles of Communism, which was written later that year, the question section 18 starts with the question, what will be the course of this revolution? And Engels writes, democracy will be wholly valueless to the proletariat if it were not immediately used as a means for putting through measures directed against private property and ensuring the livelihood of the proletariat. The main measures emerging as the necessary result of existing relations are the following. And point eight of this list is education of all children from the moment they can leave their mother's care in national establishments at national cost. And this has a profound influence on Kollontai later in 1918 when she drafts this decree on child welfare. One last thing I want to say about the principles of communism, the early draft of the Communist Manifesto. Section 21, uh, Engels asks the question, what will be the influence of communist society on the family? And to this question, Engels answers, it will transform the relations between the sexes into a purely private matter, which concerns only the persons involved and into which society has no occasion to intervene. It can do this since it does away with private property and educates children on a communal basis, and in this way removes the two bases of traditional marriage, the dependence rooted in private property of the woman on the man 
and of the children on the parents. Now, in this section of the draft of the Communist Manifesto, Engels is really saying something quite radical, which is that we're going to destroy the traditional notion of the family, of the bourgeois family. Not only are we going to alleviate the dependence that women have on men, but we're also going to alleviate the dependence that children have on their parents. And this ultimately gets taken out of the final version of the Communist Manifesto, which in chapter 2.10 in that chapter says essentially that there will be public education for all children. It doesn't talk about alleviating the dependence of women on men or of children on their parents. Now, in Germany, there had been a debate about child care with Lily Brown, who was a social democrat, basically arguing that child care should be done communally with communities of families, and Clara Zetkin arguing very heavily, as with Engels, that this should be a responsibility of the state. What's so interesting here is that Engels basically argues that these children, all children, need to be taken away from their mothers at the moment that they can be released from maternal care. And it's very vague, but one assumes that he means after they've been weaned or, or breastfed. And so I think that this idea of allowing women to take care of their children and to especially breastfeed their children until such time that they can be transferred to the care of the state where they will be educated communally and they will be taken care of. I think to contemporary ears, that might sound really horrifying because the state is taking away your children. But if you look at the situation of workers in St. Petersburg at the time that this was written, these children would have a much, much better life ahead of them if, in fact, they were cared for by a state institution that would look after them and educate them in a way that their parents could not. So without further ado, I will read Decree on Child Welfare from January 31st, 1918. Two million young lives were yearly dwindling in Russia because of the darkness of the oppressed people, because of apathy of the class state. Two million suffering mothers were saturating yearly the Russian earth with tears and were covering with their blistered hands the early graves of the innocent victims of the hideous social order. The human thought, which had for centuries sought a path, has at last reached the bright epoch of workers' reforms, which will safeguard the mother for the child and the child for the mother. What is capitalist morality? Homes for orphans filled above capacity, having a colossal mortality rate and a hideous form of nursing the infants, which form was an insult to the sacred feelings of a helpless laboring mother and which made the mother citizen a dull nursing animal. All these horrors of a nightmare have fortunately sunk into the dark mist of the past since the victory of the workers and the peasants. A morning bright and pure for the children themselves has come. You, working women, laboring mother citizens, with your responsive hearts, you brave builders of the new social life, you ideal pedagogues, children's physicians and nurses, all of you are called by the new Soviet Russia to contribute your minds and feelings to the building of the great structure of social welfare of the future generations. All the small and large institutions of the Commissariat of Social Welfare will serve the children. All of them, from the day of publication of this decree, mold into one state organization and are transformed to the supervision of the department for the safeguard of mothers and children, so as to create an inseparable chain together with the institutions for the care of pregnant women for the purpose of bringing up mentally and physically strong citizens, for the purpose of precipitating the realization of the necessary reforms for the safeguarding of childhood in Russia, at the Department for Safeguarding Motherhood and Infancy, a committee is being organized. 
It is to be composed of representatives of the Soviet of workers, soldiers, and peasants' deputies, of workers' organizations, and of specialists interested in the question of social welfare of the infants. The following principles are to be the committee's guiding principles. One, safeguarding the mother for the child. The best drop of milk for the child is the milk from its mother's breast. Two, bringing up the child in an atmosphere of a widely developed socialist family. Three, to create for the child conditions which would lay a foundation for the development of its physical and mental strength and for a bright understanding of life. Signed by the People's Commissar, Alexandra Kolontai. With this decree in January of 1918, Kolontai was essentially trying to realize a vision of collective or communal child rearing that had been discussed for the last 50 or 60 years in Germany and across the continent. I think it's really important to go back and think about Robert Owen, the utopian socialist in Scotland, who was also talking about the communal care of, of children. And this had been an idea that, you know, many people had thought about that children would be better off if they were raised collectively. And it would also free up women and it would undermine the basis of the bourgeois family. So even though many people remember Kolontai mostly because of her work on sexuality, I think it's really important also to think about the ways in which, in some ways, she's this modern foremother of childcare of kindergartens and nurseries for young children. The idea that you could successfully raise children together in state institutions was something that was tried on a massive scale first in the Soviet Union because of Alexandra Kolontai. Now, we know from history that in the case of the Soviet Union, it didn't work all that well in those early years because there was a civil war. There was the First World War and the Civil War and then ultimately the famine and the young state had a lot of other problems that it was trying to deal with and it could not in fact deal with state care of children and so eventually you know Stalin goes back by 1936 to a much more traditional way of raising children in the nuclear family but there's this incredible moment and another book that I'm going to recommend for those of you who are interested in learning about this early Soviet history is Wendy Goldman's excellent book called Women's State and Revolution which really deals with the debates the juridical debates around the 1918, the 1926, and the 1936 family codes in the Soviet Union. And, you know, obliquely discusses Kolontai's role, but it's a much more society-wide discussion and gives excellent context for what was going on in the Soviet Union at that period of time. I think it's also worth mentioning the three other biographies of Alexandra Kolontai that are available in English. Unfortunately, I think two of them are out of print, one is by Isabel de Palencia, who was actually a friend of Kolontai in Sweden for the years that Kolontai was in diplomatic service. That book, I believe, is out of print. You might be able to find a used copy of it somewhere online. It's just called Alexandra Kolontai, although her last name is spelled with a Y at the end instead of an I. Beatrice Farnsworth also has a excellent biography, but I also believe that that one is out of print. And finally, there's a biography called Bolshevik Feminist, The Life of Alexandra Kolontai by Barbara Evans Clements. It's from 1979, and it was published by Indiana University Press, and I believe that one you can still get a new copy of. These are just some reading recommendations. There are other books that talk about Kolontai and her influence and her life more indirectly, but these are the key books that I've read and I really find fascinating. 
I will provide titles and links to these books in the program notes for this show. So thanks so much for listening. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. If you like what I am doing, please let your friends know. Share this link widely and keep up the good fight. (laughs) 